You're listening to Ben and Bikes with your host, Ben Lockett. This podcast is about bikes, but more about the people who ride them and their stories, and less about frame size, shock technology, or even the Tour de France. This is Ben and Bikes, where every bike tells a story. This episode of the Ben and Bikes podcast is brought to you by Dr. Squatch Natural Soap for Men. Let's face it, chaps, after a long day in the saddle, we stink. Now you can upgrade your shower game with Dr. Squatch Natural Soap. You want to smell like the forest, there's pine tar. You want to smell like the sea, there's nautical sage. And if you want to smell like you just got off a boat in the Caribbean, there's bay rum. Visit drsquatch.com. That's D-R-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H dot com for more detail. And now to this week's episode of Bed and Bikes. All of us can probably remember a time in our lives where we wish we could go back and change a decision we made. The result of that decision probably stick with us today and probably will for the rest of our lives. For today's guest, that time was 2001 and his decision was based on just six words. It was the 2001 Under-23 National Criterium Championship, and Ian Dilley was sitting on the start line with 100 or more other hungry young racers. It was a tough field, stacked with pros, previous champions, every person thinking, why not me? The race starts, Ian feels great, but what happened in the last laps of that race will stay with him forever. This is his story. Ian Dilley, welcome to the Bannon Bikes podcast. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Not at all. It's a pleasure having you on, Ian, and uh, thank you for spending a little bit of your Sunday afternoon with me. I'm quite sure you have better things to do. Certainly not. (laughs) That's right. Good answer. Maybe you could uh, just give us a quick introduction, Ian. Who who is Ian Dilley? So currently my job title is Senior Editor of Flow Bikes. Flow Bikes is a website and app that broadcasts professional bike racing and I help create content for that site using the footage that we have to tell stories around the sport. I'm also a journalist, author, I've written two books, I've been a freelance feature writer for 10 years prior to taking this position at Flow Bikes and written for a number of national level magazines and I'm also a passionate cyclist and still an amateur bike racer myself very good i oh, did go I'm ahead also a father and a husband hey go very good answer <laughs> yeah good. that's very good so actually it's interesting to know about your other book because i i did do some research before the podcast and i saw you wrote the cyclist bucket list which i have a copy uh what's the other book that you have written i wrote the price of gold with marty notestein he's a gold medalist track cyclist from the 2000 games in Sydney and a silver medalist from the Atlanta games in 1996. And it was his story of failing to win a gold medal at his home games in Atlanta in 96 and the path to winning the gold medal in 2000 and sort of the cost of that journey on on him personally and physically and emotionally and everything that went into winning that medal. Sure. Both books, I assume, available at your local bike shop or on your favorite book retailer, whichever one that might be. Correct. Great. So uh, tell us a bit more about Flow Bikes. 
So Flow Bikes is relatively new to the space of the cycling media sphere. I came to the company around September of 2017, and we've quickly been growing and I believe filling a niche in the cycling media landscape that uh, greatly needed to be filled. I think anybody that's a fan of professional cycling finds it really difficult to watch professional cycling um, legitimately. And so we have been purchasing rights to world-class cycling races. We broadcast the Giro d'Italia in North America this year, the Tour de Suisse, Tour of Romandy, Tour of Basque Country. Um, we'll be broadcasting San Sebastian, a world tour event after the tour is over. Tour of Lombardy, we have over four months of world-class cyclocross racing, every top-level cyclocross race in, in Belgium. And we broadcast across Vegas last year, so oh, wow. um, we're essentially a, a broadcaster of professional bike races, but we also create a lot of content around the sport, tell the stories of the athletes. You know, um, our vision is to bring something to the U.S. market and international market markets that have been underserved in terms of being able to access um, broadcasts of professional racing. Our other key events are Milan, San Remo, and uh, Flanders next year. So it's a, it's a subscription service. Um, it's about $12 a month if you buy an annual subscription. And there's a bike race of some sort almost every day. If you if you sign up for Flow Bikes, we have over 200 events. So Great. Well, good. Thanks for that intro. So this conversation uh, takes us back to 2001. Most of what we are going to talk about today is also covered in uh, the August edition of Bicycling Magazine, which went live a couple of days ago, I believe. And I also want to just point out to the listeners that um, this is a conversation that really has two sides. I have uh, invited uh, Mr. Mike Friedman to be part of this podcast to tell his other side of the story. But it's also worth noting that uh, this is all relating to that Bicycling Magazine article uh, titled The Deal. So take us back to 2001, if you will, Ian. Uh, you are at the 2001 Under-23 National Criterion Championship. How did you get there in terms of where, what had you been doing up to that point? So I was on an amateur team comprised of some of the top young cyclists in the U.S. And um, it was a very formative summer for me, traveling around the country to a lot of national level races with, you know, like eight other 20-somethings and sleeping on people's floors and racing Criterium Series and yeah, just really sort of having the time of my life and building a lot of great friendships and having a lot of great experiences and, and racing really well. I had some great results that year. I'd been second at a international under 23 race in Chicago. I'd done uh, relatively well at the tour of the Gila stage race that year at the elite national championships. And so my team and I were at a Criterium series in Ohio and we drove our passenger van through the night to Gainesville, Florida, where the under 23 national championships were being held. 
I believe it was August, and it was just a really exciting time. We were coming to the race with one of the strongest teams, and um, I was, you know, I know now, and in, in hindsight, I, I was riding probably, you know, the best I, I, I may ever, I may ever pedal a bicycle in my life. Yeah, I'm quite sure. So when you, you know, woke up that that morning, if you can remember that far back, were you like, I've got a frigging chance here? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, I don't think I've ever had that like hardcore winners mentality where I'm out to destroy people and win every race and, and whatever, you know, um, I definitely like to race aggressively and, and go up the road. And so, but I, I you know, I, I love the dynamic of, of bike racing that it's a team sport and whether I'm riding myself or sacrificing myself for a teammate, it, I really gained uh, similar satisfaction out of it. So yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I knew that I had a chance of, of doing really well, but I don't think I was even amongst my team. You know, there was probably somewhat stri- slightly stronger, more accomplished riders on my team. And so I, don't, I wasn't necessarily one of the favorites going yep. into the race. So my last episode was with the um, inimitable Sharon Smith, a famous criterium racer from California. And he said, once upon a time, you got to practice your winning pose because it's going to happen. Uh, were you, were you practicing your winning pose? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, anytime you, uh, sprint for a town line, uh, you know, whatever, beat up on your buddies, you're out on an easy ride in the country by yourself when no one's looking, you know, you're practicing, Posting up, I <laughs> I think anytime I've actually won a race, I've been so shocked that I actually won that it didn't really occur to me, you know, what sort of uh, pose I was going to do. I, I I do like that line though, that uh, you know the having the mentality of of winning, and and I I do sometimes have to remind myself, even you know, being almost forty years old now, that you know. Yeah, at its essence, the point of being in a race is there's a start and a finish and a winner and however many some odd losers. So right. the point is, you know, crossing the line in the in the best possible position you can. So, right. but yeah, I, I'm I certainly certainly practice my my winning post probably more so in in my teens and twenties than uh, than these days though. Yep. So I'll cover the introduction to to Mike when hopefully uh, he joins the, the the next edition of of this or the next chapter of this podcast but did you did you know mike at that point i did not i did not know him at all uh, actually we were in the race together and we ended up off the off the front together at the, at the national championships and he was just another racer kind of with me and you know i don't think mike would uh take any offense to this at all he's actually sort of gained a, a, a reputation and sort of a lovable, lovable reputation for this, but he does not look like your sort of prototypical bike racer. He's a, like just a very muscular guy. And, and and he uses that, you know, I think, and maybe he used that to his advantage when we were off the front together because, you know, I certainly underestimated him and I didn't think that he was as good of a bike racer as as he as he is and and went on to be in his career so yeah when we ended up off the front together i we uh i i had no idea who he was yeah 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, hot off the press, I literally just got an email from Mike uh, telling me that he would love to be on the podcast. So um, oh, that's fantastic. I, I agree. I think this is great. So um, I look forward to um, to having him on the show. So listeners, uh, uh, we'll talk to uh, to Ian today and um, and then we'll have uh, Mike on, on the show as soon uh, as his schedule allows. So back to uh, the, the, this, this edition of the podcast. So the race kicks off. Um, tell us a little bit about the circuit, the distance, um, what some of the terrain was like. Uh, give, give us a paint a picture of, of what that was like. Yeah, so it was about, a, I think it was a short circuit, only like six miles rolling. Gainesville, Florida has, has, has a few little hills, believe it or not, but just classic south swampy giant weeping willow trees and um some small narrow roads and um just really green and incredibly humid and <laughs> it was a really long race for i guess races for that uh age group and kind of what i had done up to that i think it was like 110 miles you know and it's not <laughs> As, as as big a deal as sort of it felt like to me and I, and 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 we may and you know I make of it in the story because it, it felt that way it's still a very amateur event you know mostly families there and you know we had a team and a team manager and but it wasn't it wasn't like there was a big uh, crowd or fans there or anything like that it was um, you know I think the the glory of winning an under 23 national champion especially you know almost 20 years ago is uh, a glory that was a personal sort of satisfaction for sure. So it was all about the jersey? Yeah, yeah. It was, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. Um, I, th I think that's absolutely right. So the, ra the race kicks off, the first part, um, t tell us about how, how things are rolling in the first you know, uh, four laps and then maybe we can talk about what happens after that. Yeah, um, it was just really because there was no no real feature on the course other than sort of the heat and humidity and the length of the race to force any kind of selection. It was just a really aggressive open race and it took just being aggressive and being having sort of a sense of a natural instinct of how to race a bike and groups would go forward and, you know, it looked like a small group of three or four riders and then another three or four riders would bridge across to that and then a group of six and next thing you know, there's like 28 guys up the road and that's the whole race. Right. And um, that's sort of the way it happened. You know, it was either you went, you went forward up the road or you got left behind. And, um, you know, I was on a really, really strong team. We had the former national champion of that race on our team. Um, who a lot of people were definitely watching, Bryce Jones, other racers on that team who went on to race for the U.S. national team, who raced at the you know the world tour level, and other other competitors in in that race, you know, who went on to race in the Tour de France or and raced at the world tour level. So right. a lot of strong riders, and um, you know, I just remember it kept breaking apart and coming back together, and I felt just incredible and every time a, a group would come back together I would attack and we get caught and I'd attack again and eventually I just found myself off the front with with yeah just just myself and and Mike and I had a at least one uh, teammate in, in the group behind me and probably other teammates behind that so 
from a tactical perspective, you know, I knew if my move came back, then there would be someone else from my team would be able to go up the roads. So our team had sort of just been trading off attacks all day. And, and we really had that car to play as, as one of the strongest teams in the race. Right. So you've, you've played a strong hand to, to this point, but it sounds to me, having, having read the article, that at that point, you at some point start to feel so strong that you start to pull away from the rest of the pack. How, how far ahead were you when you felt you had this in the bag? So I think it was about two laps to go uh, when I attacked and I, I did, I mean, it felt like everybody was starting to get tired and that that could be the move. It didn't look like people were really motivated to chase. Um, and I think I, we got, I got like 30 seconds or so pretty quickly and I had a lot of energy left. So um, yeah, and I think that was with maybe two or so laps to go, about 12 miles remaining in the race. And then you look back and behind you, there, there is Mike Friedman coming up behind you, looking, looking pretty tired, I believe. Tell us about you know, that, that hookup between those two train cars at that point. <laughs> well, I mean, we were all pretty tired at that point. Nobody looked really very good. Um, and I would like to say this is all uh, my memory and my perspective and, and the way I wrote the article and, and um, the way I reported it as well. It's really important for me to have Mike's point of view and Mike's perspective because, um, you know, there's two sides to every story. And so, especially in a story like this, but anyways, he, um, yeah, he links up with me. Um, he's able to make it across, um, obviously a really hard move for him to get across. And by the time he got there, he was pretty cooked and, you know, from my memory, didn't seem to be able to, uh, work very well or work very hard. And, I would take a hard pull and he would come through, you know, and wasn't able to pull very hard. And so I would attack him and try to get rid of him rather than sort of having a passenger that wasn't contributing to the move with me. But he would always be able to claw his way back to my wheel and I wasn't able to get rid of him. And this happened maybe two or three times. And every time he would claw his way back to me, I would, you know, just sort of stop pedaling because I wasn't just going to take him up the road if he wasn't really able to contribute to the move. And like I said, I had teammates behind, so I figured, you know, if we got caught, then my teammate could attack or we would just rest up and I would be able to go again. And for Mike, I mean, it was, this was it, you know, he was with one of the guys from one of the strongest teams in the race. And, right. you know, he, he knew of our team It was sponsored by the Mercy Hospital in Arkansas and, you know, he'd seen our big van and our matching bicycles. And, you know, we even had a masseuse from that was employed by the Mercy Hospital that would come out and give us massages, um, you know, after the races. And so in our sort of small world of bike racing, our team was kind of a big deal. And so he I, I am sure that he knew that this was his best opportunity to get a result. And so, yep. you know, he he says to me, you know, let's keep riding keep working with me and, and you can win. I, I won't sprint you. Yeah. So before we go on to that point, I, I think um, it would be great for you to help the listeners of this podcast understand the benefits of drafting off a rider in front, um, because I think that's a, that's a critical piece of this story. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, that's the core of bike racing. That's what makes bike racing sort of the beautiful sport that it is. And, all of the tactics and everything is is based around drafting and 
you know, the energy savings from sitting behind another rider can be anywhere from like 20 to 50%. So, um, you know, you know, we measure how much power we're putting out in, in wattages. It's actually a physical or measurement of the energy that you're putting into the pedals. So say somebody is pulling 400 watts into the wind, if you're sitting behind them, you could be doing as little as 200 to 250 watts. Yep. So it's, it's immense. So yeah, when, when you're in a group like that, you're always very conscious of how much, you know, the other people in the group are pulling and how hard they're pulling and how long they're pulling. And, um, because that, that, those little differences, you know, if someone is pulling 10 seconds longer or a half mile per hour faster, that, that makes all the difference when you come to the end of the race and, and how much energy you have left. Yeah. So needless to say, guy at the front is pulling at 400 watts, guy behind is pulling, is pedaling at 250 watts. Significant difference allows you to be able to um, recover to a certain extent, certainly more than the person who is riding up, up at the front. Um, so that's, that's a critical piece of the story, as I said before. And then uh, the six words that I mentioned in my introduction are said by Mike. Tell us about you know, what he said to you at that point. I'm taking a break from the Ben and Bikes podcast to tell you more about Dr. Squatch Natural Soap for Men. Made with natural ingredients from the earth like oils, plants, goat's milk, Greek yogurt and oatmeal. Turn your post-ride shower game up to 11 and get ready to get out of the shower feeling alive. Ship straight to your door, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. And if you sign up for monthly automatic soap delivery, you'll get free shipping on all orders. Visit drsquatch.com, that's D-R-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H.com for more details. And now back to this week's podcast. You know, I just remember him saying, I won't sprint you. I don't, I, you know, I'd have to look at the article to remember what the exact six words are. But uh, I'll, re uh, I'll read it to you. It says, I, yeah, I, the, fa yeah. the famous words, I won't sprint, you can win. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's what he said. And that's, that wasn't surprising to me. You know, in fact, I was, you know, probably waiting for him to say something like that because you know, these deals that you make when you're in a breakaway like that, when one rider is at a, uh, a disadvantage because they're not as strong as the other rider, or they're at a tactical disadvantage because they don't have as many teammates or they don't have as strong as a team, you make a deal to get the best result possible that you can get. And right. so for Mike to have an opportunity to be on the podium at the national championships was a huge opportunity for him. and. You know, bike racers don't talk about this publicly a lot. It's actually taboo to talk about it publicly. But yeah, these are the time and they're widely accepted. And sometimes it's just a, a straight sort of handshake deal like that. Like, hey, I'm acquiescing that I'm, I'm the weaker rider here. Don't drop me and I'll let you have the win. Or um, sometimes there's even, you know, some money that exchanges hands in terms of, you know, uh, let me have the win and I'll let you have, you know, I'll split the winning money with you or I'll let you have the winner's money or other types of things. So yep. these deals are, 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 are really quite common. 
so quite common, but are they are they set in stone, or is there is there other times when this can be considered gamesmanship? I think in sport in life you're only as good as your word and you only really get to go back on your word once and so if you're a bike racer and you break a deal and word gets out that you broke a deal that's the last time you'll ever make a deal in a bike yep, race yep 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 so uh, that's sort of the thing and so it, you certainly hear about deals being broken but when there's a national title on the line or um, some other major championship, there's rarely a level of, of gamesmanship. I mean, it's sort of that ethical code that exists in other sports yeah. like, you know, golf in terms of letting your ball lie where it may or, right. or other sports where there's a, um, a, a, very, a very high level of sort of honor. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so you are uh, some way back um, and from from the finish line. Um, maybe you could tell us, you know, how far back that was uh, before the world changed in a direction that you weren't expecting. Um, I think it was about a, a lap and a half to go at that point. Maybe so, like eight, ten miles, something like that. And and then what what happened? Um, so I put my head down and I started pedaling as hard as I could. And, um, you know, we came through the finish line and, you know, the, uh, there was a motorcycle referee that was, uh, or a referee on the motorcycle that was giving us updates as to how far the chasers were back and the gap kept increasing. And, um, and it became pretty clear at that point that we were going to win the race. And so, and so I was, yeah, just pedaling as hard as I could and, you know, I think I waved Mike, through, or I guess to my memory, I should say, because Mike has a slightly different recollection of this. And um, I and and when we first met, started talking about the race. I guess my him saying, you know, I don't remember. I remember us sharing the work pretty equally. That's what made when I wrote the article made me want to include his perspective and his story and his side of the story as clearly and accurately as I could. So I, I want to make clear that everything that I'm saying about this race is, is, my, me <laughs> is my memory from yep. 18 years ago when I was 21 years old and, and Mike was, uh, I think, only 18. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I remember, um, you know, just putting my head down and driving to the line and um, allowing Mike to sit in the draft and... Um, and, and doing most of the work uh, going into the finish. Okay. And then going into the finish, he pulls out and, and takes the checkered flag. Yeah. So um, I think a really important thing happened prior to, to coming to the finish line is we, we, we were taking the sort of final left-hand, sweeping left-hand turn to the finish, and it was um, maybe a kilometer to go to the finish or something like that. And... I turned to him and I said, hey, you, you remember our deal? And, you know, looked to me like he nodded. And so um, I just kept riding. And then there was kind of one little hill up to the finish line and, and Mike started sprinting. And I've been pulling for the last 10 miles as hard as I could and I started cramping. And uh, he, he beat me to the line and he won the, the national championship. 
he's a sprinter by trade, right? I would say he's really good at sprinting. Yeah. He's never sort of pigeonholed himself as being one thing. He's always just been a really good, strong rider. Um, and, and what he did, you know, in his career moving on really showed that. But yeah, he has a really, really good sprint for sure. And um, at that point in my career, you know, and, and to be honest too, I mean, I, I was not hugely experienced. I've only been racing, you know, I grew up in a cycling family, but I'd only been racing road bikes myself for, you know, uh, a couple of years at that point. That was not my forte I was sprinting yeah. at that point. I just, you know, as I'm as I'm reading this, and I I wonder, you know, if, you know, Mike knows he's a he's a strong rider, uh, he's you know he gets a sniff for the finish line, and almost like instinct takes over, at that point, and and all sort of memory of of an agreement with you. I'm, I, and I as I say, there's two sides to this story, and I I would be very keen to understand this. Did 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 that happen to him in this situation where he just saw the line? and instinct kicked in and he just went for it. Yeah, I mean, that would be a great question for Mike. And, you know, and that was one of the, you know, we can get to this, but when I was reporting the story, Mike and I sat down for, God, it was almost three hours and went through that day and what led up to that day and the race um, moment by moment. And um, I got to hear his side of it and, and what happened and um, a lot of poignant things stuck out to me about that that are that are included in the article but one of the most poignant things was that yeah he wasn't thinking oh I really got this guy I screwed him over I can't believe he believed yeah, me right he just saw the finish line and started sprinting because right. he's a bike racer and right. like I mentioned even just the nature of this race really rewarded somebody who had very natural racing instincts. And I think both Mike and I are pretty similar in that way. You know, I, I raced at the domestic level uh, professionally briefly and was on the U.S. national team. And, you know, he accomplished far more in, in his cycling career than I ever did. But uh, both of us were never hugely talented racers in the Chris Froome sense in that we had these big engines and we could, you know, fly up a giant mountain or, you know, demolish a time trial. Um, we had other, we were strong racers, but we had other qualities. And, you know, one of those main qualities was just really being able to read a race and know how a race was going to play out. And so I think when you take a racer with that sort of instinctual knowledge and they see a finish line, especially someone like Mike, who was a really good sprinter, um, yeah, he just started sprinting, and and when he crossed the line, he immediately felt terrible. Um, it, it's it it very quickly dawned on him what he had done, what the repercussions were, what it meant, you know, in his own words that he had cheated, and so. You know, the, there's no rule in the USA Cycling uh, handbook that says, you know, if you make a, a deal with another competitor in a race and you go yeah. against that deal, blah, blah, blah. Totally it's right. It's like first wheel across the finish line wins. But right. but by Mike's own code and only being 18 years old, he, he, he felt like he had cheated. And so, yeah, I mean, he but, but he did cross the finish line first and, and he won the race. Yeah. Uh, so he he feels like that as he crosses the line, but 
he still stood on the uh, on the podium in the first first spot. Was there an immediate uh, acknowledgement that that he cheated, or did he, uh, you know, take the championship and uh, and milk it for all it's worth, for for want of a better word? That's a really crass way to to state it, but you know, did did he then take it and and, and run with it? No, he felt terrible. I mean, he he took the jersey and he took the medal and he stood on the top step of the podium, but you know, neither neither of us. Neither of us were smiling on on the podium. That's interesting. Um, yeah. We were both just really sad and um, and and hurt, and yeah. you know, it's sort of you know what would have been a, a great moment of my life, and and even you know, and Mike says now, if if he had gotten second, that would have been a great moment yeah. for him as well. Sure. Um, you know, he wasn't on a big team. He wasn't somebody that you know he was only 18 years old um he was a first year under 23 and nobody expected him to have a ride like that you know it was it was the best ride of his life and so in a weird way by then winning the race after having made that deal it 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 sort of ruined it for him as well and so he you know he had a coach at that time that was like you know and I've never spoken with the coach about this, but just from what I remember of, of being there and, and what Mike has told me, his coach was sort of like, there's no like fixing this. Like you just take the jersey, you stand on the podium and, and you move on. And so Mike did and he did a few races. He wore the jersey in the races, but there was a reporter from a uh, bicycle racing magazine, Bella News there that was covering it. And, I was pretty open with that reporter about what had happened and and so it was out there and people were asking questions about it and and so Mike was just really sort of you know and I don't want to put words in his mouth but having talked to him at length about this I mean just really sort of broken as a bike racer and he he quit racing at the end of that season um, for almost a year and a half and went to college and um, just really um, sort of lost his passion for the sport. Sure. Do you have a photograph by any chance of the podium? Oh, Ben. Uh, (laughs) So uh, if there was one, uh, (laughs) uh, um, we we definitely would have uh, published it in the article and uh, the photo editor for Bicycling Magazine, Amy Wolf, she worked really hard to try to recover the photograph because there was there was one out there at one point, and I I can send it to you. I have a very grainy hey. photo that I've taken with my phone of a printout of the yeah. web page um, that it was on. But um, we we have uh, we have pretty low standards here at on the Benefax <laughs> podcast. But uh, so. but yeah, in terms of uh, but no, I've I've talked to the reporter that was at that was there at the race. And unfortunately he said he no longer has that photograph. And I, you know, I actually, when I was reporting the story with Mike, I went to the Bella news office and talked with them about it and they were very gracious and let me look through, um, all their old archives and everything. Um, but yeah, the photo was only printed online and, uh, and published online and it, uh, it's no longer online anymore. So if there is someone else out there that can find that photo, that would be great. But there, there was a pretty, um, or there is a pretty incredible photo of me 
and Mike standing on the podium. And when everybody raises their arms, I didn't raise my arms. So Mike is yep. standing on the top step of the podium with his arms up and I have my arm at my side. Yep. And um, so, so this whole, whole race from 17 years ago, something like that, I think something, uh, is it 17 years ago? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, 17 years ago, 2001 to 2018, uh, has been sitting like a weight on your shoulders and Mike's shoulders, um, is my understanding. I, I'm, I mean, there's no way that you would be writing an article in 2018 about something that happened in 2001 unless uh, this had, had been that, that weight on your shoulders, uh, Ian. So you and, and Mike ha have met recently in, in Colorado. You mentioned spending three hours together uh, whilst you, you know, came up with the, you know, your thinking with, with regards to this bicycling magazine article. Tell us about uh, about that meeting and, and the conversations that you had relating to 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 that weight. You know, that was the last time we really saw each other or or spoke to each other for for fifty years you know uh, we really we crossed the finish line and i yelled at him and you know i think i slapped him on the back and he he had this sort of deer in the headlights look in his face and apologized and and he said he would give me the jersey back on the podium and then um and you know then i think you know based on the advice of his coach other things he he didn't um and, and that was the last time we, we ever talked or spoke. And, you know, the, this story amongst our friends who were all, you know, sort of elite level bike racers and pros and whatever, it was sort of known. And um, and it was sort of a, a weird thing because the, especially at that level of the sport, the community is rather small, right? And there's probably amongst our generation, you know, a few dozen of us. Um, and so it was kind of this weird thing where I didn't like Mike and I think Mike didn't like me because I was always <laughs> telling everybody that he was a cheater. And uh, <laughs> in the meantime, you know, he, he got back into racing and um, was, was moving on, you know, um, he, he became a track cyclist and was having a lot of success with it and ended up going to the Olympics. And then he came back to the road and had a lot of success racing on the road and ended up going um, racing in Europe sort of at, uh, at the world tour level for a year or two. And, um, and, and he is a really good, genuine, funny, intelligent, uh, sort of introspective person. And so when I would tell people, you know, Oh, Mike Friedman, he sucks. He's a cheater. I was basing everything on this one experience I had with him when he was 18 and I was 21. Which and and you'd only met you, and yeah. you'd only met first thing that morning as well, right? Exactly. <laughs> My only experience was having been in this race with him and, and the moments after the race and whatever else. Right. So it was this really weird thing and like and it was funny too because we had like mutual friends and it was like they kind of had to pick sides like if they were going to be Mike's friend or my friend or 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 whatever else and so kudos to Mike my story I sort of I was in studying journalism at the University of Texas and then you know raced br briefly at, at the sort of national level and 
had a knee injury and then sort of moved on to, to writing and journalism full time. And so um, I was doing some reporting at the uh, a professional level bike race in Colorado, the Pro Cycling Challenge. And, yeah. Right. Um, I was working for uh, Rally Cycling, um, doing doing some some work for them. And Mike used to race for the team that preceded Rally Cycling, Optum. And so his teammates, the race started in the town he was living, Golden, Colorado. And his teammates were like, "Hey, Mike, you know, come hang out on the bus with us before the race. That'd be great." And you know, I sort of jokingly quipped to them, like, well, you might want to give them a heads up that I'm here. And I don't know if they did or not, but, um, you know, Mike came on the bus and asked if anybody wanted coffees and then went out and made a coffee run. And, um, and he, he had seen I was there and he bought me a coffee and came back and gave me a coffee and, and sort of laid it out there, you know, um, you know, he didn't apologize then at that time, but he just wanted to acknowledge that he wanted to move past kind of uh, what happened and talked a little bit about it. And and that's when I really realized that he had his own story, that he had his own perspective of what happened. I think at that time, he wasn't able to admit to having broken that deal. And I think it's an important thing to note that for years, he had he had lied about what had actually happened. He knew that he had made a deal on the road and then broken it. But whenever anybody asked about it, he would just say, oh, you know, there was a misunderstanding. Ian thought that we'd made a deal, but I'd really just said, you know, if we work together, we can win. And it was a plausible explanation. But I, you know, I knew that that's not what really happened. And and he did too and it always just ate at him yeah. and so and so we we exchanged numbers and we agreed to to talk again and then that's sort of what led to to us us meeting a few months later and 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 him giving me the jersey back and Let's not uh, let's not gloss over. <laughs> just, Sorry to give away the plot. Let's, man. <laughs> let's 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 be clear on this. That's a big deal. So did you know that he had brought the jersey with him? Did he say he was going to bring it? So we didn't. So when when I saw him in Golden, he didn't have it. But then he went through some pretty serious life changes that had, were very impactful to his life and and the way he wanted to live his life moving forward. You know, his dad had passed away previously um, to our meeting that time in Golden and um, he'd retired from professional cycling and was kind of seeking a new professional and, and, and career path. And I had, I actually introduced me to, and I met his wife in Golden, but they ended up divorcing and, huh. and, and they had a pretty um, tumultuous relationship. Mm -hmm. And so he had gone back to, to Pittsburgh to kind of, reset and figure out what he wanted to do with his life and he he had the jersey stuffed in in literally his childhood drawer kind of the back of his drawer he'd never hmm. when he you know it's sort of that fall when he, when he had quit bike racing he stuffed it in a drawer and he literally hadn't taken it out for for over 15 years and so he pulled it out and he decided he wanted to move back to colorado and 
continue this uh, this business that he had started, which is a after school program for kids to to teach them cycling skills. Call it's called Pedaling Minds, and it yep. incorporates um, science, which Mike has a real passion for mathematics and science and and cycling, um, which are a very natural fit. So it's sort of an educational program that also teaches important sort of physical activity skills and, and cycling. And so mm-hmm. he wanted to start that program in the, in Boulder, which um, feels sort of like a home for him. That's where he lived when he was racing at the professional level. And yeah. so he was driving back to Colorado from Pittsburgh and he called me and he, he told me he had the jersey with him. And he, he told me that he had broken our deal and he knew it and and it had eaten at him for all these years and mm-hmm. and he told me he was sorry and he just you know um his words felt just this huge weight off his shoulders and 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 this lightness and so i told him that i'd been thinking writing an article about this and that i would like to write an article about this and and you know being a journalist, being a writer, you know, Mike and I talked about this. I, you know, I had always controlled the narrative about this story, you yeah, know, and sure. so I, I told him that I wanted to meet him and sit down and get his story, and that I would, I would always have my perspective, but I wanted his perspective right there alongside mine. And the last thing I wanted was for him to look like a bad guy, which I think he was very sensitive to. Yeah. So yeah, so we uh, we had a mutual friend um, that was also you know uh, he had raced with professionally a childhood friend of mine uh, Pat McCarty and and that lived in Fort Collins. So I flew up to Colorado and Mike drove up from Boulder and we met at my friend Pat's house in in Fort Collins and right away Mike gave me the jersey back and we embraced and. He apologized again, and and then we went for a mountain bike ride. Uh, I could end the podcast with that statement right there. It's just fantastic, right? I I said this in my last podcast when I was talking with Gloria, I think it was, not the last one, the one before Sharon. I'm a firm believer that uh, in terms of the asshole quotient of people uh, who ride bikes, it's, it's much lower than the national average. And whilst it took you guys... 17 freaking years to get together and and to just get this behind you and lift this weight on the shoulder and then followed it up with a bike ride and then i'm hoping you had a beer after that 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 just sums up biking and and the people who ride bikes um i think that's just a tremendous uh conclusion to to that side of the story yeah, I mean, it was a very, uh, it was a very bromantic day. A bromantic uh, day, right? Exactly. <laughs> we That's like right. went had a coffee and burritos, and do. and we went on this like three-hour mountain bike ride in in the foothills of the Rockies, at, you know, outside of Fort Collins, and then we yeah we had a beer and burgers and right. You know, um, we went for like a swim in the in the reservoir there. All right, enough, and, enough of that. Yeah, it, it, was, uh, <laughs> it, it was it was it was cool, and it was. Um, I mean, I think it was like you know, both Mike and I, we've stayed in the sport, and we have a real passion for the sport, and we've made our careers after yep. um, bike racing around the sports. So. Um, so yeah, I think uh, we 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 have a we have a lot in common and, and yeah. a lot of um, shared shared interest. When you, well, uh, this is a dangerous question. Can you fit into the jersey? <laughs> <laughs> I can. I uh, good man. <laughs> yeah, and and for sure, 
when I, as soon as I was alone with the jersey, I unzipped it and and put it on, and uh, and, and and took a look at myself in the mirror. Um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been I've been waiting 17 years to put that jersey on. So how did it feel? Um, how did it feel? So, yeah, I mean, it, it felt somewhat conflicted, you know, and and. Um, didn't feel like winning a bike race yeah but it kind of felt like winning at life yeah you know it just felt like people are good yes (laughs) and if you're a good person and you live your life the way that life should be lived then good things will happen and and that's yeah that's when i look at that jersey i mean that's what it means to me now, it's, it doesn't really mean anything about being a fast bike racer when I was 21. It means that all that pain and emotion and whatever else that we get from these really sort of trivial things that we wrap ourselves up in, whether it's a bike race or a relationship or your job or whatever else, it all works out, man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> if you you know, it all works out. So yeah. that's sort of how I feel about it now. And and I and I did really wonder what what I was going to do with it, and would I be proud of it, and whatever else. But I think um, having gone through this whole process and having written a story about it that I'm really proud of, and having you know formed a friendship with Mike, and it's uh, yeah. I mean, my wife is a, a a custom picture framer, and so yeah, we've we've talked about framing it and, and hanging it in my office and alongside the article, and it's special. I mean, it's uh, I think it's it's at this point it's much more representative than you know being the fastest um, yep. bike racer on a road bike under twenty three years old in in the U.S. in two thousand and one. Yeah. That's super, Ian. Thank you very much for giving us your perspective. Uh, as a reminder, uh, the deal uh, is in uh, this month's uh, edition of Bicycling Magazine on your bookshelves right now. I urge you to go out and read it. It's a great article, but uh, hearing it from you rather than, than reading it is, is special. And uh, I, I appreciate your candor and um I think it's wonderful uh, that you two have have uh, made up and that you're now mates, and that's uh, that's what it's all about. Thank you very much for your time today, Ian, for sharing this with us. We we you know I really I really appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. All right, no problem. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Ben and Bikes podcast. You'll find this and many other episodes about athletes, authors, filmmakers, and community organizers, all with a story to tell about bikes by visiting benandbikes.com. Thank you for listening. We'd sure appreciate it if you could rate and review the Ben and Bikes podcast wherever you listen. We appreciate your support, and thanks for helping us connect with other bike enthusiasts. If you have a bike story to tell, email us, ben at benandbikes.com.